You are listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast featuring some of Indiana's most fascinating men and women whose impact has shaped our state, our communities, and us. Join us as we discuss their imprint on our history. Leaders and Legends is brought to you by Veteran Strategies Incorporated, your local veteran business enterprise specializing in public relations, media relations, public outreach, crisis communications, and digital photography. My name is Robert Bain, Principal of Veteran Strategies, former Deputy Chief of Staff to Mayor Greg Ballard, and Communications Director for the Indiana Republican Party. I'm honored to be your host for our discussion. You're listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast presented by Veteran Strategies and sponsored by the Girl Scouts of Central Indiana and Aaron Shaler, your local mortgage expert. We're here today with a very special commemorative podcast discussing the lifetimes and legacy of Senator Richard Luger. We're here with three people who knew him very, very well. Jim Morris, who was his chief of staff when he was mayor in the 60s and 70s. Jim Shella, who covered him multiple times over the last 25 or so, 30 years. And then Gail Lowry, who certainly is one of the people who were closest to the senator, worked for him both in the state, I believe, and in Washington, D.C. Is that mm-hmm. correct? That's correct. Thank you very much for joining us. Uh, it's a sad time for sure, and words may be hard to come by, but I can't think of three people who could talk about uh, the senator and the mayor uh, from different perspectives. Mr. Morris, Jim, we'll start with you. Talk, Take a couple minutes and just tell us how you met him and and how you formed this connection that you obviously have. Uh, thank you, Robert. Uh, Dick Luger was my close pal, very close pal for 52 years. Um, to be truthful, I can't imagine life going forward without him. Um, I went to work for him in 1967. Uh, a very interesting story. I was working at American Fletcher National Bank. The chairman of the bank, Frank McKinney Sr., had a, a close relationship with Alex Clark, a previous Republican mayor, who was running for mayor again, and he and Dick Luger were primary opponents. And Frank McKinney Sr. invited me to his office and asked if I'd like to take a leave of absence from the bank and go help his friend Alex Clark which I did. Uh, A few weeks later, Dick Luger beat Alex Clark in the primary, and I thought I'd had the shortest political career in history. I go back to the bank. In August of 67, I get a phone call. "Uh, Jim, this is Dick Luger. You don't know me, but um, I'd like for you to come help. Help me. So I trot back up to Mr. McKinney and say, uh, I've had this phone call. Uh, Dick Luger would like me to come be his right hand for the rest of the campaign. And I was his right hand, his driver. Um, We lived together for the next uh, 90 days. And uh, so it was, um, uh, other than my faith and my, my wife, the greatest thing that ever happened to me. How did he get your name? I mean, you worked for Alex Clark, who uh, I believe is the uncle of Murray Clark. Is that correct? That's correct. Who's a well-known Republican politico. And Frank McKinney, am I wrong in remembering, wasn't he chairman of the Democrat National Committee yes, at was. some point? <laughs> so how did he get your name of everyone's name? Well, I, I, I was the youngest person helping Alex Clark. Uh, the next youngest person was probably 40 years older than I was. <laughs> and um, I don't know how he got my name, to be truthful, but I'm very grateful that he did. And ultimately, I became his chief of staff for for six years, his, uh, um, starting January 1, 1968. And uh, I probably talked to him um, every other week for the rest of his life. And... Um, Great man. Jim Shellup, a longtime political reporter for Channel 8. You came here in the early to mid-80s, is that correct, from our previous podcast? Let's see if I remember. Yeah, the end of 1982. So you had the occasion to uh, 
cover Senator Luger. He just came off a tough re-election in 82. It was a bad year for Republicans all the way around. I believe he beat a fellow named Floyd Fithian in 1982 by probably think it was his closest re-election race. Were you able to cover that? And and how did you develop a, a trusting relationship? Because I know you've spoken very highly of the senator. <laughs> well, yeah. Um, no, I didn't get here till December of 82. So uh, the election was already over. Um, and I, you know, frankly, can't tell you when I met the senator for the first time. Um, but uh, what I can tell you is that when he decided to run for president in 1996, I do believe that he gave me the first interview to to uh, publicly make that uh, uh, indication. Uh, he uh, and invited me out to Washington to do that interview. Um, but uh, you know, he. he he did a lot of things beyond just representing his constituents. Uh, he did a, a symposium for high school students at the University of Indianapolis every fall, and I, I spoke there. He he created the the Luger series um, that that helps Republican women uh, get involved in elected politics, and 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 uh, I spoke at that. Every year we, we got at one point we got to where we would have the Luger series group come to a taping of Indiana Week in Review uh, every year and then we'd speak to him afterwards. So so, you know, I covered him, um, you know, certainly got to know him. I'd, he'd, he'd, he would call me the impresario of Indiana <laughs> Week in Review. <laughs> um, yeah, but but, uh, you know, when it started, I can't tell you. Gail, you worked with him both in, in D.C. and in Indiana. Really, I hate to say the grassroots level because that's cliche, but I can't think of another way to, to put it. What was it like to work with him, especially in Indiana, when he took so much interest and showed such concern for helping everyday Hoosiers who are frustrated by the bureaucracy and just need help? Yeah. He, he put constituent services first. I'm going to pick up on something Jim said, and then I'm going to loop back around to that. The, the Symposium for Tomorrow's Leaders at the University of Indianapolis, I often heard the senator say that that was the most important speech he gave every year. And, you know, he was the consummate uh, be prepared Boy Scout, Eagle Scout. Um, but he put a lot of time in that uh, in that speech because he had a group of almost a thousand students and your point about students and and indiana he really felt like i have an opportunity here to impart some information and hopefully some inspiration Um, and then with speakers like jim and both jim's here who would come to speak to the students as part of the breakout sessions i went to that symposium just a couple years ago and stuart stuart uh, my husband and i sat right in the middle and at the end the young girl in front of us turned to her dad and said wow he's really smart. I learned so much. I'm so glad I came today. This was just a couple years ago. Um, To that point, let me ask a quick question. Is it fair to say that the school board experience never left Richard Luger? Oh, absolutely. He was on the Indianapolis Public Schools board in the mid-60s for about four years before he ran for mayor. Right. And, And that never left him. I don't think so. Jim can speak more to that with the early days. But I, what I saw with Luger every single day, as much as he was such a great uh, speaker, he was a really great listener. And I think he honed those skills early on as a member of the school board, certainly as a student himself. Um, the man was, was just con- constantly voracious about learning um, and listening so that he could put that to work and as i recall he used to tell people to just read yes i I remember once i had a uh we had a letter from a student wanting advice and the the advice that i got to send back to her was that uh, bertha his mother had um told had him read biographies from a very young age going forward so that he would understand the pathway many different people took and what what those what those pathways looked like and how they got to where they got to mr morris we're going to call you mr morris because we have two gyms here and there can only be one mister so it's mr morris would you speak a little bit about how the ips experience the maybe the first few years as mayor really fueled what mayor luger wanted to do 
Why don't you call me James and you can call him. Um, I should just call him Shella. That's what everyone <laughs> that's right, calls that's him. That's right. Um, with me. <laughs> I have a, a couple of thoughts. One, I always said that he would rather spend time with five students than five bank presidents. Nothing disparaging about bank presidents, but he loved time with students and unlike, I did not work with him in the Senate, but I'm told that he spent time every week with his student interns religiously and never missed. And um, we started the internship program when he was in the mayor's office and had, had eight or ten bright young people every year. Um, and he loved time with them. Now, to your your point about uh, his work with IPS, um, he, he ran for the, the school board, and the, uh, he was elected, and uh, there were a number of uh, quite elderly uh, folks on the school board. He might have been the only Republican on the school board, although it was a nonpartisan election, and he... Um, he sought the presidency of the school board and, and uh, was not elected. And at that point, he made the decision to run for mayor. Um, the, the, lots of things stand out about his service on the school board, his, the Shortridge plan. His, his, this man had the most unbelievable commitment to fairness and inclusion and he had the humanitarian's heart for for everyone, but especially kids who were vulnerable, sad, lonely, at risk, and needed a boost. At that time, Indianapolis had never received any federal money. Um, the ever? Ch- ever. The Chamber of Commerce was absolutely against federal money for housing programs, um, and we were maybe the only school system in the country of significant size that had not ever received a penny for the school lunch program. And, uh, you know, if there was ever anything that, that really dramatically changed opportunities for kids who were in, in poor families, it was the school lunch program and ultimately the school breakfast program. And he, he worked, it, worked that issue and brought the school lunch program uh, to the Indianapolis public school system. And today, you know, 85, 90% of the kids in IPS would qualify for free or reduced lunches. But that, that was, he had also, interestingly enough, been an incorporator of the Community Action Against Poverty program called CAP. Mm-hmm. And it was unusual for a Republican to be involved with setting something like that up far before he became mayor. But th- this commitment to t- child hunger and to seeing the kids had a good balance, a lot of nutritious calories every day, um, he spent his entire life uh, working on that agenda, among many other things. But when he was mayor, he was focused on how we could address that issue. And in the Senate, um, along with Bob Dole and George McGovern, Dick Luger, over the last 36 years of his career there, was the the most effective advocate for hunger issues, both domestically and internationally. And at the, you know, one of his final great leadership accomplishments, he, he got the Global Food Security Act he led the way to get it through the House and the Senate. And uh, um, because of who he was and how he, how passionate he was about these issues, um, you know, hundreds of millions of people have been fed over the last 50-plus years. I mean, it's an incredible accomplishment and something he sustained throughout his public life. Did it— Question to Jim Shella: Did the constant, justified and reasonable drumbeat about about Luger being a statesman—that's the that's the word you hear the most. 
did it make him more difficult to cover? Did it make it more difficult to ask him the question that you know was going to make him uncomfortable? Like you can compare him to other Republicans or Democrats who are more political and more, I'm not going to say clownish, that's not the right term, but but are less serious. And to make it like, I got to really ask a tough question of, of Dick Luger and I just don't necessarily want to do it. Oh gosh, I was always a volunteer for for tough questions. <laughs> I'll vouch for that. Yeah, I'll vouch for um, that. Yeah, uh, but you know, he could handle them. He could handle them. But but a couple of things that come to mind. Um, he, he, you say clownish. He did. I always remember when he was running for president in New Hampshire. Uh, I went to a town hall meeting and he spoke for ninety minutes. And it took questions, um, you know, made an address first. There was never a light moment. I mean, it, it's not it, it's not that it was dour or 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 you depressing know, or yeah. But he didn't make jokes. He did unlike most politicians. He didn't he didn't start out with a funny story. Um, and and people walked away from that town hall meeting. I believe having to believe that this was a guy who really understood what what goes on in this country and in the government and in the world and and had all of the qualifications you were looking for for president and and yet there wasn't a a soundbite that you could pull from it there wasn't a story that that, that you could tell i mean he he was a very different uh, politician and and at the same time on, on his last day uh, of campaigning in New Hampshire on the day of the New Hampshire primary uh, in 1996, uh, one of the things he did was make a visit to a school to vi- to point out what was happening in the school lunch program there, which um, to some of us in the press corps, that that was kind of a, 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 a curious choice because you ought to be out talking to voters, not, not not to school kids who can't vote. But but for him, it was all about pointing out what he believed in and what he'd accomplished, and and he was hoping that that would carry over. Did it? You heard a lot, and correct me if I'm saying this incorrectly, or if I'm if I'm just wrong. He's too serious to be president. Not serious as in his personality, but he's just too serious of a thinker. He's too much of a statement. He's not going to roll around in the mud. He's not going to throw those political haymakers that you have to throw, that all politicians throw, quite frankly. Do you think there's some truth to that or no? I guess I'm not sure I ever heard that he was too serious. I'm not sure. I'm not sure. um... I just read before where he's such a serious person, a serious thinker about the problems of community and country and the world that he isn't willing to play the political part that you have to play to get the nomination to get the kind of attention that you need does that well, make sense well what i would say to that is is, is that mark lubbers who, who ran his presidential campaign said uh, after the experience that they had in new hampshire and iowa where they won just four percent of the vote in each state uh, he said that they had underestimated the show business uh aspect of of national campaigns um that they he, he was serious i mean i don't know if i don't know if he was too serious but certainly he w- he was not uh the reality tv star that that we see in politics today gail when you started working for him tell us a little bit about how you came to be part of the Luger inner circle and what it was like and and what it was like when he says, Gail, let me ask your opinion or Gail, what are your thoughts on that? What's it like to have Richard Luger go, tell me what you think? <laughs> well, I'll uh, chime in as one of the thousands of and thousands of students that started as an intern in 1986. I actually had an internship lined up with the Senate Republican Caucus. I was a senior at the University of Evansville. And uh, Reagan was president, and I don't know the, the series of events exactly, but all I know is I got a call and from the staffer that I had arranged the internship with who said, Reagan has fired the, the director and the rest of the staff is gone and we're not honoring any of the internships. I had met uh, uh, my professor at, at um, the University of Evansville was Dr. David Guggen, and his wife was Dr. Linda Guggen, who taught at IU Southeast, who was on the Fund for Hoosier Excellence Board for Senator Luger, which is the Minority Scholarship Program. And Keith Luce, who was the Senator's State Director at the time, had um, met Linda. And so when I went to my professor and I said, I've got my plane ticket, I've got a place to stay, I no longer have an internship. And so... Um, Linda called Keith Luce, whom she just met the week before, and said, I have a student, 
And then the rest, the Luger's chief of staff called me for an interview over the phone. It was Chip Andre at the time. And uh, they gave me a spot. So I got incredibly lucky um, and got an internship in the spring of 86. And the rest is history for me. Were you... Were you able to to make that connection? You know, they're, they're yeah. really successful politicians or office holders. Let's use a, a, a non pejorative, uh, like whether it's whether it's Mitch Daniels or <laughs> Richard Luger or Evan Bayh or you know Greg Ballard, Bart Peterson. They create this network mm-hmm. of leaders who who come up behind them and carry on their legacy, and and it kind of a lot of ways expand it and build on it. So many people who worked for Senator Luger went on to do incredible things, and mm-hmm. you could list them better than I can or Jim could. What was it like to be a part of that network, that Luger network? It was it was so powerful because you could always find somebody that was resourceful and wanted to help. And he really, that network was very, he leaned on that network a lot. And he, like I said, he was a good listener. So he had a brain trust, um, I think. I can tell Jim wants to say something. <laughs> We're getting ready to go to you as the head of the brain trust. Since Governor Daniels isn't here and we can't ask him some questions, we definitely want to pair you every time. Jim and I did a Channel 8 hit, and one of the questions they asked was about Senator Luger's legacy, and I quickly chimed in, Mitch Daniels, Jim Morris, Teresa Lubbers. I mean, you start naming all these names and all the things that they've done. Uh, one of the things that I specifically wanted to ask you about is – and it's maybe a little bit of a policy question, but but to me, it's one of the 10 most impactful decisions in the history of modern Indianapolis. And that's the decision to build Market Square Arena downtown. The Pacers needed a new place. There were lots of, there were some competing plans. A lot of cities were building in the suburbs. Uh, post uh, forced busing, uh, white flight had occurred. But, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but Mayor Luger had a, uh, vision for what downtown Indianapolis needed to be. You were, I was, I recall correctly, you were in his office at the time uh, when Market Square was was conceived and started. Talk us a little bit about that decision and why you think it was so important for the next fifty years. Uh, okay, I'll do that. Um, t- just to amplify quickly uh, on Gail's uh, question, Dick Luger was one of those incredible people that brought the best out of everyone who was associated with him. If, if he wanted to talk about a policy issue, you always got prepared. And you, um, at least I always was at my best at, when I was helping him or working with him, um, as opposed to when I was just working on my own. He, uh, he um, he was he just had that extraordinary. You wanted to do the best job you could for him. So Market Square Arena. Uh, I remember the morning very well. Uh, I walked into his office. Uh, I was on the southwest corner of the city county building, twenty five floor. He was on the northwest corner, and and I said, Dick, um, we've got to make a decision. Somebody someday is going to build a new arena in down in Indianapolis, and either you're going to do it and get the credit for it, or somebody else will do it later on. And Dick Luger had been a um, on the the paper staff, the editorial staff for the Shortridge Echo when he uh, was in high school. <laughs> And he had also been a stringer for Bob Collins, who was the sports editor of the Indianapolis Star, covering high school basketball. Dick Luger loved Indiana high school basketball. He always, when he was in the center, if he could, would come back for the final tournament games. Uh, and he, he always hosted the athletes from the area after the tournament was over in the office. It was, uh, and he loved uh, things like that. But the high school basketball tournament had been moved to Bloomington at IU because Hinkle Fieldhouse was no longer big enough to accommodate the state championship games. And at that time, it was still class one, one class. And it, it just killed him. 
he loved Bloomington, but it, it was heartbreaking for him that the high school basketball tournament was not played finals in the state capitol. So the Market Square Arena was built for the Pacers. Uh, uh, we'd played for years at the Coliseum, and the Coliseum seated eight, 9,000 people, and it needed to be twice that um, to have a chance of breaking even in a small market. But number one was building Market Square Arena for the state high school tournament. Number two was for the Pacers, and number three for dozens, if not hundreds, of other events that took place there. A couple of interesting footnotes. It was um, a a package involving the uh, restoration, renovation of the old city market, the building of the gold tower building just north of the city market, and there was to be a hotel on the other corner, uh, just east of the uh, gold building, and then there was to be a, a, a sidewalk or a passageway going from the city market into Market Square Arena. And Market Square Arena was built on the top of two parking garages. Uh, so we really minimized the land cost, and we certainly didn't have to pay anything for the air rights over Market Street. But Dick Luger went down to see Mr. Lilly uh, at the company to see if there would be some interest among the Lilly interest in um, paying for the renovation of the city market. And, and, and when Dick went down, he had several uh, ideas for Mr. Lilly to think about. But let's say the meeting was at 9 o'clock in the morning, and Dick Luger showed up precisely at 9 o'clock in the morning. And Mr. Lilly was so impressed that uh, this mayor – uh, came to see him and was absolutely punctual. And uh, I, I've heard Mr. Lilly tell the story later on. But all of this was a package, and uh, we built Market Square Arena for, I believe, $16.4 million. We just built it, put a new scoreboard in Banker's Life Field House for $16.4 million. And I tell Dick, I, I used to tell Dick Luger and Herb Simon, well, we, the, the, it costs the same to build Market Square as it did to build to put the scoreboard in. Neither of them thought it was as funny as I did. But, um, but, but building on that real quick, no pun intended, the, the, lo- the locating of Market Square Arena downtown, would you say that's the first real building block for the revitalization? Pretty much. Um, in, I mean, the genius in part of Indianapolis has been that we have had the discipline uh, to build everything right downtown where it belonged to everyone in central Indiana equally accessible. We made a mistake when we allowed Deer Creek to be built out in Hamilton County. That should have been built downtown along the river as a home for the symphony. But the building a market, everybody wanted to put Market Square Arena somewhere out around 465. And everybody wanted to put the baseball stadium and the football stadium and the symphony hall and the zoo out somewhere uh, around 465, but we had the discipline to say, no, we're gonna, the downtown is the heart of the city, the most important neighborhood that belongs to everyone, and we're going to build it downtown, and, and we did. And um, he, was, um, um, he was so proud of that building, and when the high school tournament played there for years, um, he always had a twinkle in his eye about that. <laughs> You're listening to Leaders and Legends. We're having a discussion today about the legacy and life of Senator Richard Luger with Jim Morris, Jim Shella, and Gail Lowry. As always, Leaders and Legends is presented by Veteran Strategies Incorporated and sponsored by the Girl Scouts of Central Indiana and Aaron Shaler of Grandview Mortgage. Jim, after 82, uh, Luger never really had a tough race until the primary of 12. Well, in 2006, he didn't have an opponent. He did not even have an opponent. That's correct. <laughs> the, I the, guess that's the... <laughs> the, the... The Democrats chose not to run anybody against him. They were concentrated on other races. 
do you believe that if he had had tougher races, then maybe things would have ended differently instead of losing the primary to Richard Murdoch in May of 12? Do you think he'd necessarily the campaign arm wasn't battle ready? I, I think there was there was a degree of that. Um, he, I mean, Gail can tell you better than I can, maybe that in his last several races, he didn't bring in. Uh, outside professionals to run the campaign, he would have a staff person uh, run the campaign for him. It was always an in-house operation. And when they got into a close race against Richard Murdoch in the GOP primary in 2012, I I don't think that they were prepared uh, to do the sort of quick response uh, that you have to do uh, in a close race. Um, they, uh, they thought that they could stand on their record and, and that the public would recognize that. I mean, the, uh, the lasting image that I have uh, of Dick Luger in the 2012 race w- was when all the residency questions came up. Um, I mean, we we've just talked about how he was the most accessible uh, of politicians, but but during that campaign, uh, we couldn't get to him, and and they they chose to to make him available for for. Uh, what we call a cluster. It's just uh, everybody, you know, jostle and try to get a microphone in, see if you can get a question out to him. And, and um, so he, he took a few questions and, and then went back essentially into hiding as far as the media was concerned. It, it, and it, it's just something that they weren't ready for. Richard Luger, uh, as as he declared to some of us in this room, actually, and, and I wrote about Indianapolis Star, was known as Nixon's favorite mayor. Nixon said it in on Monument Circle, Jim. You were probably there. Uh, is it safe to say that he lost his 1974 Senate race to Birch Bayh because he was Nixon's favorite mayor, and he lost the 2012 primary to Richard Murdoch because he was Barack Obama's favorite senator? And, you know, he was portrayed that way by Murdoch and and uh, right wing Republicans. Yeah, the fact of the matter is, I mean, a big part of Dick Luger's legacy is his ability to to work with Democrats, to reach across the aisle. You know, his his relationship with Sam Nunn is maybe one of the most important relationships uh, among Republicans and Democrats uh, in the the twentieth and twenty first centuries, um, and. What he, you know, that was all around the bill that that reduced uh, uh, the nuclear stockpile from the Soviet Union, and and when none was no longer in the Senate, that's when Luger went to Barack Obama because he needed another Democratic partner, and and obviously they 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 had a relationship that that hit it off on a number of levels. Um, and, and I mean, it's my understanding he had a photo of uh, Obama on the wall in his office, and some people held that against him. Um, but, but I, I, you know, he didn't see that as a problem. And and I guess, uh, uh, you know, looking back, I didn't see it as a problem. Um, but there were a number of uh, Republicans uh, who were looking for change who did. And uh, you know, it's it's kind of interesting how, you know. You, if you if you're if you're playing football, Bill Belichick will tell you that what you got to do is find the other person's biggest strength and take it away from them, and and that's essentially what happened here. Was his his biggest strength was was working with Democrats, and and they took that away from him. But the end result is you throw away a Senate seat for six years. I could, um, I remember as if it was this morning, the Nixon favorite mayor story. Uh, President Nixon brought um, his domestic affairs cabinet to meet in the Luger office on the 25th floor of the city-county building. And there were only five or six Republican mayors in the top 50 cities. And we had the mayor of Wichita, the mayor of Albuquerque, um, and two or three others here. And Peter Bracedrip, the columnist for the Washington Post, wrote a story, Nixon's favorite mayor. At the at the time, I think we were probably excited about that. But um, <laughs> it, 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 you know, over time, it, uh, it 
it's by the way, it's unfair to say that he didn't have a sense of humor. He had a great sense of humor, and uh, I, did, I didn't say he didn't yeah, have a yeah. sense of humor. <laughs> I, I just, that wasn't part yeah. of his presentation. No, he, he was serious and thoughtful, but delightful to be with, and a good sense of humor. And um, the the moniker of being Nixon's favorite mayor um, was was the. Uh, the butt of a lot of funny stories over the <laughs> over the next 40, 50 years. Well, I asked him at that small dinner that you threw for him during the Ballard transition, and it must have probably been December of 2007, and I finally got the stones up to say, you know, I was only three years old, but I've heard this story forever. Were you actually Nixon's favorite mayor? And Senator Luger told the story. They were at some lunch on Capitol Hill, and... Uh, Nixon was sitting next to him and they made small talk and he said just out of nowhere Nixon leaned over and says you know you really were really my favorite were my mayor, favorite mayor. That's right. <laughs> you, you know we, we this 2012 thing is absolutely bizarre this man was a uh, conservative Republican exactly fiscally he is as conservative as any human being that ever was put on this earth he looked after the public treasury like it was his own bank account. Um, it's um, t- t- the loss of this. And by the way, I have no idea what his staff, how they were protecting him. But Dick Luger, the man I knew, would love to spend an hour with Jim Shella, shooting the breeze, thinking, talking, um, having an enjoyable conversation. This was a man... Um, huge advocate for the First Amendment. And this was a man that loved the media and loved – he wasn't trying to hide ever. That's – And when I got recruited to work to do PR for the Super PAC, the person who recruited me goes, you have any problem defending Senator Luger? And I looked at him like he was on heroin. (laughs) I'm like, you simply have got to be kidding me, right? Like, are you you serious? I think 2012 was, you know – it was it was the times. It I think it was the perfect storm in many ways with the Tea Party. I think Luger got in it a little later than what we normally would have for the ground game. To your point, Jim. Um, but if you told me that we were going to raise five million dollars in the primary, which we did for Friends of Dick Luger, um, <clears throat> and get out raised and out out bought and outspent by outside money, you know, I, I hadn't no idea the power of that wave that was coming. Let me ask a question for you and and Jim Morris that's kind of related to the question that I asked uh, Jim Shella a few minutes ago. Did you ever have to tell Richard Luger no? And what was that like? (laughs) Oh my gosh. Because I've never told Greg Ballard no. So I don't know what it's like to tell the person who, you know, you look up probably to. Probably wouldn't have said it quite like that. I probably would have said, could we do this instead, Senator? <laughs> <laughs> um, I don't remember ever having a conversation with him like that. You, you never honestly. remember saying, Senator, I just can't do that. Or, Senator, I'm not, I'm just not comfortable. Or, Senator. No, no. I know. I mean, he, he always, like Jim said, he always had high expectations and you wanted to do well. You wanted to prepare. um you know, one of the things I loved about being a fundraiser for him is that I knew wherever I took him, to Jim's point, the man could answer the question. And if he couldn't, he would find out. He was resourceful and he would tell you that. Um, but the fundraisers we did were not receptions. They were um, more like briefings. And everybody learned something. And everybody got a chance to ask a question. And everybody left there feeling like they knew something more about legislation or their country or foreign policy. Um, and I just, I loved that. Jim Morris, do you, did you ever have occasion to say, Senator or Dick, I just can't? Well, not exactly like that, but I had uh, opportunities where uh, I had one opinion and he had another opinion and he had a very unusual way of uh, handling that issue. He would say, well, I think that's an interesting idea. And I knew when he told me it was an interesting idea, uh, we were never to talk about it again. <laughs> um, but uh, frequently I would uh, – um, but, you know, I was only 24 at the time. Um, and he was just, what, 10 years older so we were pretty young, and 
um, he's as bright and as attentive to detail um, and as honorable as any human being could be. But I, I had a, a, several very interesting uh, when I thought we should do one thing and um, he thought we should do another thing and, and we usually did what he thought we should do. <laughs> but um, but uh, he, he was never um, – he, he's the height of a, a civil person, loved good conversation. He, he, he was uh, – my six years with him every day, I saw him angry twice. Um, and he got over it quickly, um, and uh, the people that had been done silly things, it sort of irritated him a little bit. But, you know, this whole notion of um, – I mean, he was a Republican, and he, he was uh, as loyal to the Republican platform as any member of the Senate could have ever been. He was a problem solver. He was a practical person. He was an inclusive person. Um, but this this notion that you're evil if you uh, don't respect and uh, what the other person has to say is just nonsense. You, you know, it's um, and it's not like Sam Nunn was some raging liberal, by the way. No, well, you know, and, and President Obama, you know, he has good ideas and he loves his country too, and they see the world differently, and and the good Lord made us different, which made our country better. And I, I think, you know, when you can, can find common ground, and if you work at it, mm-hmm. you can find common ground with almost anyone. And in the end of the day, we're all better off for that. And uh, this nonsense that he was um, something other than what he was, is it, it's, it's actually it, – it, it's heartbreaking because it's just not the man. Did you get did, – did Jim Morris or Jim Shella get the sense that, that – Richard Luger enjoyed politics, enjoyed the retail part of politics. You know, they say a lot of people like, say, Bill Clinton and others just thrive on pressing the flesh and, and that sort of thing. Was was Senator Luger comfortable there or was he more comfortable with a bunch of really smart people having a serious discussion about big problems? No, I think he was he was comfortable pretty much anywhere. And, and you know, to D- Jim's point that, that he, he would, uh, you know, like to sit down and talk to me for an hour. I mean, he would do that. He, I mean, he, when he was in town, uh, you know, for a few days, um, he'd he'd I'd like to have breakfast at, at the Hilton at uh, Ohio and Meridian and and he would invite folks like me one at a time you know just come down and join me for breakfast this morning and and there would be no attempt to make news it was just to to talk about uh, what's going on and get to know each other and uh, that really a pretty unusual circumstance for a public official and Jail, genu- I'm getting ready to come to you but go ahead Mr. And, and, forgive me but and genuinely interested in your family, and would 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 know about your family. Loved to talk about his own family, um, but he, he did enjoy the retail side of politics. Now I, I, I'm sure he hated the nastiness and the mean spiritedness, and you know this last Senate campaign we had was just so wretched here in Indiana. He would have hated that, but he enjoyed being with people. Um, and anybody that didn't think he was a first-rate politician is, uh, doesn't know the man. Uh, at that time, we had 714 precincts, I think, in Marion County. And he kept track. I mean, this brilliant mind, he knew the results of all 714 precincts. Um, he paid attention to – I mean, he knew you had to win an election to have the, the gift of being able to serve. And there are a lot of very bright people, by the way, in politics, so you can have a conversation with bright people and political people at the same time. And um, he – you know, you, you see a, a Bill Ruckel's house or a Mitch Daniels or a John Mutz or a Ned Lampkin. Um, you know, the, these are smart, smart people. And it was um, he. He enjoyed them, but he enjoyed and very respectful of the political organization, the committeemen. 
Um, and I think the Republicans have been hurt a bit because that organization is not to what it is today, what it was then. I remember when I met him the first time in the summer of 1985 uh, through the the kindness of a, a really an underrated founding father of modern Indianapolis, and that's a fellow named Dick Guthrie, who, Jim, I know, yep. Jim Morris, I know you knew very well. Served on the school board. That's right. And uh, his daughter, Jennifer, and I uh, graduated from high school together, graduated from Hal. And when I spent some time with um, uh, Senator Luger, he was very kind. Then he kind of asked like a perfunctory, where do you go to high school? And when I said, I go to Hal, completely changed. I mean, he was nice before, but he was all about asking me questions about IPS. What's it like? How's everything now? He was genuinely interested. And then I got to meet him several other times. The question I wanted to ask Gail is something we were talking about before we started in our last few minutes here is the program that that bears his name uh, that helps Republican women network, uh, get connected, uh, I say get jobs, but Mm -hmm. get all the things that that you have to do to succeed in politics. Talk a little bit about that. Richard G. Luger Excellence in Public Service program, which has been going on for 20 plus years now. Uh, it's, it's been a while. 1989, I believe, was the first class year. So, yeah, pride and joy. He, um, when, uh, when Teresa Lubbers, Judy Singleton, Sue Ann Gilroy, Melissa Martin came to, to him to talk about, you know, that we've got a preponderance of women here that are really interested in, in, organizing some sort of program. By the way, that was a result of a Women for Luger fundraiser where I, I can't remember exactly how many turned up, but it was over 500. And uh, they realized there was a hunger for um, women to get involved. And he, without hesitation, said, sign me up. And he, he that, you know, pride and joy, was so grateful to Sandy Huddleston and Ann Hathaway, who's now the executive director of that program for making sure that went on. I was a member of that class, the second class of that, of the, the what we call the Luger series, the Excellence in Public Service series designed to increase the number of Republican win, women in elected and appointed offices. And uh, he, as a matter of fact, um, he would have been giving the graduating class uh, next Thursday their uh, commencement speech in Washington, D.C. Every year he still did that. Absolutely. And when you say pride and joy, think a little bit more about, tease that out a little bit more about what that means. You know, I I think part of Luger's um, um, goal and passion was to inspire others to get involved in public service. Don't sit on the sidelines. He was a proud Rotarian, honored with the Rotarian of the Century Award, I think, in 2013. Service above self. He listened. You know, his his father was a Rotarian. He talks about how when he was growing up, Marvin would come home and at the supper table talk about whatever the 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 uh, speaker spoke at Rotary that day. Um, so I think the thought to him of encouraging women to get involved, to to have their voice heard. Uh, was just he was thrilled to be a part of that. And, and Jim, you must have covered a lot of these graduates who went on to elective well, na- well, office. In, in name a, a Republican woman who's in office, and, and chances are she's been through the program. I mean, <laughs> Christy Stutzman, who who is now in the legislature, I remember her being in the class one year. Uh, Yasima Verma, uh, who who runs uh, Medicare and Medicaid at the federal level now, she was in the class. Susan Crouch. Yeah, yeah. Susan. I mean, name somebody that they were there. Um, it's it's really um, would it twenty five women per year get into that? Is that it? about yeah yeah right. and um, is it, there anything like it anywhere who? else? Um, it's, Any other senators I, I it, anywhere? I think it was the first of its kind, but I believe it's been copied. Right. It has it's been, been copied elsewhere. Yeah, it has been yeah. replicated. That's right. Yeah, Jim Morris, a, a really strong uh, young thinker, and I guess he's young because he's younger than me. Named Trevor Foudy, who has been involved in politics for a while. He and I worked together at State Party about 10, 12 years ago. Wrote an article that he was very kind to send my way where he talks about, the, among other things, and Trevor's a, a terrific historian of, of modern politics. He makes the point in his article that's coming out, the seeds of Senator Luger's 36 years in the Senate and the success and the reputation really began with how he ran Indianapolis. 
and all the things that he tried to do for Indianapolis. You can call it inclusion. You can call it equality. Unless you've read or around in the late 60s, early 70s, you really don't understand it. But Senator Luger just kind of took the same set of principles and took them to Washington. Is that a fair statement? Well, I'm sure it's a fair statement. Um, he he um, is the godfather of UNIGOV, unified government, where Indianapolis was a city of 80 square miles overnight. The legislature merged it with Marion County, and it became a city of 402 square miles. He believed that, that the— the city of Indianapolis ought to reflect the real community of Indianapolis. Um, and at that time, he reorganized the structural side of government as well as Indianapolis went from being the 30th largest city to being the, the ninth largest city between San Diego and Baltimore. Pretty remarkable. And he had extraordinary aspirations, expectations <clears throat> for the city to be a great place and to be a special place and to be an inclusive place. And, you know, great leaders understand how to use the strength and talents of those around them. And he, he was really just quite remarkable in the way that uh, the business community, the African-American community, the civic, civics community, um, he, he found a way to bring them together uh, to cause great things to happen. Just uh, forgive me, but just okay. a, a few days ago, we celebrated the 50th anniversary of IUPUI. And we always had. You a, took my next question. Go ahead. We, ahead. we had a great d- debate over who said it first. Every city, great, every great city needs a great university. And the 50th anniversary celebration of IUPUI. 203,000 people have received degrees from IUPUI since 1969. 90% of them have stayed in the state of Indiana, most of them in central Indiana, largest research budget in the state. Um, You you could, he, he just had, he knew where all the touch points were and he he understood how to connect the dots better than anybody I've ever seen, and he knew how to get it done, and and to get lots of people sharing in the ownership. He he was not a person that ever cared about who got the credit. He was concerned about the outcome. Uh, John Mutz talked about that in the previous podcast we did with uh, Lieutenant Governor Mutz and State Senator Louis Mayhern talking about IEPUI and that that was something Luger mentioned often and, and frequently that it has to happen. Go ahead, Jim. Well, I just want to emphasize the point that, that one of the amazing things about Dick Luger's legacy is the fact that even though he was defeated in 2012, he didn't stop. Um, you know, the next fall, Terrific. Yeah, Jim Morris and I took part in a, in a dinner the next fall where hundreds of people got together to, to recognize him for his service, and he got up and gave a speech and spelled out five issues that he was going to continue to pursue uh, even though he was no longer in the Senate. And he created the Luger Center at, at uh, IU. He, he had programs that he was involved with at IUPUI. Um, UND, the, he was big at UND. In, in the meantime, um, the man who defeated him uh, in 2012, Richard Murdoch, hasn't been heard from, which would be the typical uh, action of, of a, a losing politician. I mean, Luger, Luger never stopped. You know, you bring up a good point, if I can interject. Please go ahead. Luger was always looking forward, always looking forward. And when he lost that election in 2012, he, on that Tuesday, he was coming back to Indiana for the annual Fund for Hoosier Excellence Banquet for the Minority Scholarship Program and the swearing-in of the troops at the track. And he um, sent a note to Leslie Reeser, our state director at the time, and said, I want to do a brown bag lunch with the staff on Friday. And so we all got together around uh, the table that Friday after the Tuesday loss and he sat there with us and he talked about all of the wonderful things that he was so proud to be involved with with us together. It was always we. It was never I. The constituent services, the Nunn Luger program, feeding the world, you know, um, um, 
the the Good Samaritan Act that allowed um, retailers to contribute protein with with legal cover, all kinds of things all around the state, all around the world. And then he turned to all of us and said, we have some work to do. We've got another six months or so in office here. You all are bright. You have adventures ahead of you. I want to help you. You let me know how I how I can help you going forward. Um, and that was who he was to his core. In a podcast that that's going to air in May uh, that that we did with Allison Melangdon, the Midas touch extraordinaire of everyone in this city, she's amazing, and her podcast was terrific. But she told a story in which um, one night the uh, she left the Super Bowl committee headquarters. So Allison Melangdon was CEO of the Super Bowl um, a few years ago, and she walked down on Georgia Street just to kind of see what was going on because it was beautiful night and everybody was out there. And I think we can all, everyone in this room and, and listening can remember what it was like for that Super Bowl village, Super Bowl village, excuse me. She said that she saw a tall man in the distance and went up to go see him because Allison recognized him. And that person was Bill Hudnut. And she said that when she got up to him, he was crying. We took it as as a story of him standing going, this is exactly what I've envisioned since the early 70s. Going around the table, starting with Gail, what do you think Richard Luger thought when he walked around or was around Indianapolis, downtown Indianapolis, taking him back to when he was school board on the school board and when he was mayor? When he looked around and saw the Super Bowl and the buildings and, and just the hundreds of thousands of people out in this beautiful city, what do you think his thoughts were? I think he probably thought about all the people that helped make it that way and that he was proud to be a part of that. People like P.E. McAllister, people yeah. like Jim Morris, people like the list goes on and on. Jim Doris Sr., Jerry Simler. I mean, we can't name them all here. Right. But. He was very connected to the people who helped him early and then stayed with him. Absolutely. Yeah. I, I you know, I, I think Luger always was about team building. I, there were so many teams that he built, and we all were incredibly proud to be a part of that and constantly learning and constantly listening. Um, and I think that, um, you know, as much as people talk about, you know, he he took Indiana elsewhere. He never left Indiana. Um, so I think that he was incredibly proud of that. To as a counterpoint to that, he was stayed interested. I mean, just last year when there was the IBJ article that came out that said the poverty rate in Marion County was twenty point one percent, up from eleven point something percent in the year two thousand. He was very concerned, um, and you know, was constantly thinking about who can be convened to make things better. Jim Shella? Well, that's uh, I was just going to say, based on you know what's been said here, I'm sure when he looked around Indianapolis, one of the things that he thought was what more can be done, what can be done to make things better. Um, that was his nature. Jim Morris? Uh, I agree with what uh, Jim and Gail have said. Um, he would have been thinking about what can we do what what can we do to be sure that every child in Indianapolis has a, a chance at a great future, feels a part of uh, the city, that the city cares about them? Uh, yesterday, I, I talked with uh, Char Luger, and she wanted to, we talked the about— senator's wife. Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, we talked a lot about um, infant mortality in Indianapolis, and she was— up to date on the the numbers and very focused on what do we do about that issue, he would have been the same. You know, one people have asked me a lot about him recently, and I've tried to f- find ways to uh, tell who uh, my sense of who the man was. If if a young man or a young girl from Attics High School walked up to him and said, "Sir." I would love to have a chance to go to West Point. Um, I'd love to be a student at the U.S. Military Academy. Would you help me and would you write a letter for me? And then if he went back to his office and he had a letter, uh, a phone call from President Trump, and President Trump said, 
Senator, I I need some help. Would you write a letter, uh, something that Dick was comfortable with and believed in? Would you help me with this issue or President Obama? But And so he would say, sure, I'll, I'll do my best. And he would have gone back to his office. He would have written both letters, and he would have had the same passion and the same commitment drive to be sure both of them were as helpful and on target and right as they could possibly have been. And he would have stayed up late to get them both done, but he he would have been as focused on helping the student at Attics who wanted to go to West Point as he would have been on helping the president of the United States. And um, that's who the man was. Amen. You have been listening to a podcast, uh, Leaders and Legends. It is presented by Veteran Strategies Incorporated and sponsored by the Girl Scouts of Central Indiana and Aaron Shaler of Grandview Mortgage. Jim Morris, Jim Shella, and Gail Lowry have spent the last hour with us talking about the life, legacy, and service of Senator Richard Luger. It's a life defined by service. Starts as an Eagle Scout, becomes a Rhodes Scholar, serves as an officer in the United States Navy, served as city, served as country in the Senate, and through these works, he served the entire world. It is a deep loss, and I hope you've enjoyed listening to these three wonderful people talk about an even more wonderful man. Thank you. Thank you very much for listening to Leaders and Legends, brought to you by Veteran Strategies Incorporated. If you want to contact us about this program or our menu of public relations services, please send us an email at robert at veteranstrategies.com. That's robert at veteranstrategies.com. Thank you.